First Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18. The whole theme of First Kings is covenants and character. We're looking, obviously, at God's character, His faithfulness to His promises, His covenants. Then we're looking at Israel's character, which very frequently embodied in their kings falls short of God's character and how they do not keep their covenant with the Lord. We're going to look at that today specifically. But as we have approached here, chapter 18, we are focusing in on the reign of King Ahab. We're going to be following him pretty much to the end of 1 Kings until the very last chapter. We'll be focused on Kim. And the man that God sent, the prophet that God sent to minister during Ahab's reign, Elijah. And when we read chapter 17, we saw that God sent Elijah to tell King Ahab that it would not rain again until Elijah said so. And while God supernaturally provided for Elijah in Israel for a short season, Elijah has been recently living in another country, staying with a widow. And meanwhile, the drought has gone on for over three years, causing a famine in Israel. And it's at this time that God speaks to Elijah again. And when God sends Elijah back to Israel, Elijah encounters two men a faithful believer, and a wicked king. But Elijah's message to both of these men is exactly the same. The Lord is a God who can be trusted. So chapter 18, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all the fountains of water, and unto all brooks, peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we may not lose all the beasts. And so they divided the land between them passed throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, Obadiah went another way by himself, and as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. So we are introduced now to this scene as Elijah's coming back into Israel. It says in verse 1, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went. Elijah is to be commended for his obedience He didn't do or say more or less than what God instructed him to do. He just went. And I don't know about you, but I want to obey like that, don't you? Like if God says go, then I just go. God says say this, I say this. Now the full story, of course, is that Elijah didn't always obey like that, right? In James chapter 5 verse 17, it reminds us that Elijah was a man of like passions just as we are. In James chapter 5, 17, it says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. The phrase of like passions is all one word in the New Testament language, and it means to have the same feelings, to be affected by things the same way, to suffer or struggle like others do. Elijah is one of the most revered people in Judaism. But he did not have superhuman abilities that spared him the internal struggles that you and I have. When we, God tells us to do something, or when we have a situation in front of us where we know what God wants us to do because we have a command in His Word, it's not like Elijah didn't experience the same struggles that you and I do. And sometimes, 
Elijah didn't approach obeying God with the same perfect attitude we see here. Why do I point this out? I point this out because of the end of James 5, 17, which says, he was just like us, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not. And then he prayed again, and it did. I point this out because sometimes we look at past failures or even present struggles and think I could never be used of God. I would have to be like Elijah here to ever be used of God. And that is not true. That's a lie. I said earlier that I want to obey God like Elijah does here. We should obey God like Elijah does here. And if I purpose in my heart to do so moving forward, I can please God like Elijah does here. But whether or not I am always successful in pleasing God or not, God still wants to use me, just like he wanted to keep using Elijah after his bad attitudes later on in this book. Now, that Elijah went also shows me that he should be commended not just for his obedience, but for his courage. Elijah is number one on Israel's most wanted list. Now, Elijah's courage is not the courage of a man demanding to take on all challengers because he's confident in himself. He's not someone who thrusts out his chest and says, come at me, bro. He's not someone who's saying, I can take anyone and I'll do it anytime. His courage is the kind that is absolutely confident in God's plan and God's love. God's plan and love for himself and God's plan and love for his people. So before we get started on this journey of one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible, the question needs to be asked, are you absolutely confident in God's plan and God's love for you? Are you absolutely confident in God's plan and God's love for those around you? Because we need to be if we're going to move forward with courage and obedience. Well, verse 2, the end of it tells us when Elijah returns to Israel, things are bad. It says there was a sore famine, a severe lack of food in that Samaria is just that whole region, that middle part of Israel. And when people don't have food, they're angry. And if you're the person who's in charge, people are angry with you. And when people are angry with you, your position is vulnerable. I wish I could say that this problem in Israel made Ahab repentant, but it did not. In fact, the nation as a whole still hadn't repented. But bringing rain again was part of God's plan to draw the nation to repentance, to show them who they should trust with their whole lives and not just for food. You see, God loved Ahab and he would be reaching out to him too. But as we see, Ahab is focused right now on how he could solve the problem. And so he, in verse 3, turns to his palace administrator. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Governor means the palace administrator. He was the steward of Ahab's property. And one of Obadiah's primary responsibilities was feeding a lot of people. This is a guy who knew how to get things done. And he also has here one other character trait that the writer mentions. He feared the Lord greatly. I think sometimes we misunderstand the fear of the Lord. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord in the sense of reverencing God, of being in awe of God, of trembling before the Lord. But most of the time when it mentions that this guy feared the Lord, it means that he loved God. It means that he worshiped God, that he reverenced the Lord. And it says that this guy, Obadiah, worshiped or reverenced God or followed God 
greatly. It means to the highest degree that something can be. Obadiah loved the Lord immensely, as much as any person can. Now, you might be wondering, how can a man who loved the Lord work for a guy like Ahab? I mean, how could you be in this guy's presence every day and love Jesus? Well, he could because God loved Ahab and sent Obadiah there. That's where God wanted Obadiah, just like God loved Pharaoh and sent Joseph there, just like God loved Nebuchadnezzar and sent Daniel there. Was it easy for Obadiah? No, we're going to see that in a moment. But Obadiah went there because that's where God wanted him to be. God calls some of us to be Elijah in this story, who I doubt could have ever been Ahab's spiritual advisor. I think Elijah would have pulled his hair out or killed Ahab or done something. He would have been the wrong guy to have in the palace at this time. While God calls some of us to be Elijah, God also calls some of us to be Obadiah. Both serve the Lord faithfully as evidenced by their character and conduct. Verse 4 tells us about Obadiah's conduct. It tells us that for it was so when, tells us how much he loved the Lord, for it was so when Jezebel cut off, she was killing the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And when we think of a prophet, most of the time this word conjures up, you know, the image of a strange guy predicting the future, acting weird or something. But that was not a prophet's main role. In fact, I would dare say most prophets that you would have encountered as a, a member of Israel probably didn't ever predict the future. You see, originally God chose the Levites to spread the teaching of God's Word to God's people. But the Levites left that call from God, that life, to pursue their own financial goals. And so God raised up prophets to do the job. And Samuel started a school of prophets to train men to teach the people God's Word. Like today, not all seminary graduates leave with a solid faith. And so, when we look in the Bible, we see some prophets in the Bible who are false. We see some who are compromised, and then we see some who are faithful like Elijah. Well, Jezebel really didn't care which one you were. She went after anyone associated with the Lord. Now, Jezebel, why did she do something like that? Well, she was more than just a queen. She would have been a priestess of Baal, being the king's daughter. She would have been a, maybe not a high priestess, but she would have been a priestess of Baal back in her homeland. And when she married Ahab, her plan was to abolish Jehovah worship entirely, and Ahab supported her. Well, Obadiah had the power and the resources to do something about that, and he did. It says that he took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave. The word took here means forcefully seize. So this is one of those untold stories in the Bible that I'd like to learn about when I get to heaven. Like, did he stage an arrest? Like, how did this work out? Or was it more subtle than that? And then how did he successfully get enough food and water to a hundred mouths in two separate locations during a famine? Where were the caves? And how were they never discovered? Again, that's one of those things when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, where's Obadiah's line? I want to talk to him. Obadiah was a courageous, faithful man who was right where God wanted him to be, playing a huge role in God's plan, even though the details aren't mentioned. So it begs the question, am I right where God wants me to be? Are you right where God wants you to be? Am I being faithful in the role that God has chosen for me? Well, Ahab did not summon Obadiah because he found out about the prophets. He had military concerns, and he needed someone who knew how to get things done. 
And so in verses 5 and 6, it says, Ahab said to Obadiah, go into the land, unto all the fountains of water, unto all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. There was no running water at this point in time because of the famine. He's just hoping that if they go to the places where those sources of water were, they might find some grass for the horses and mules to be kept alive. That's what the word save alive means. Losing horses would weaken Ahab's cavalry and invite invasion or even rebellion. Losing mules would mean losing supply train animals. What's interesting to me when I read this is that God told Israel they were never to have either of those things. They were never supposed to have a strong cavalry, despite the military advantage cavalry gave you. And mules are crossbreeds, which is a practice forbidden in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Now, someone might argue and say, yeah, but like, if you want to have a strong military, you needed a cavalry. I mean, that was what the people of the region were known for, the chariot. You got to have horses. You got to have chariots. Otherwise, you are going to battle every single time at a disadvantage. To which I would say, if the Lord's with you in the battle, you're always going into the battle with a severe advantage. Just because it's practical doesn't mean it's the Lord. God's instructions in His Word should govern our decision-making, not practicality. Well, it mentions they divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, Obadiah went another way by himself. It just means separate from each other. I doubt the king or his steward would be traveling alone, especially with military concerns being the reason for their trip especially with the fact that people are probably angry because they have no food. It's not exactly safe for you just to go walking out by yourself if you're King Ahab. The key point that the writer's bringing up is that Ahab isn't with Obadiah, and Elijah runs into Obadiah first, verse 7. And as Obadiah was in the way, while he was on the road, whatever way he was looking, it says Elijah met him. The word behold here, it means it was a total shocker to Obadiah. This is the last thing he was expecting to find out on the road. And the word met there, it means happened to encounter. So I think that's interesting, the language that's used there, because from a human perspective, it is just chance. But of course, it was not a shocker to the Lord that these two would meet. I have had, you ever have one of those moments where you just kind of, maybe you're in the car, or you're in bed at night, or you just kind of looking around you at creation, and you just kind of think to yourself, Lord, are you really out there? It's so easy for our minds to get caught up in what we can't see, even when it's staring at us, you know, right in front of us, all the things that are clear that the Lord's there. I have found it important to remember all those chance encounters that God has brought into my life. It reminds me of so many things that God has done that they were shockers to me, but not to the Lord. Well, when Obadiah sees him, it says he knew him and fell on his face and said, are you that, my Lord Elijah? He recognized him immediately. Second Kings chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that Elijah had a rugged mountain man look to him. It says he was easy to pick out in a crowd because he was extremely hairy and he wore a certain outfit. He's a mountain man. He was from the mountains of Gilead. He's not a, um, he's not a guy who's going to be invited to many high-scale parties, okay? All right? He's a guy who's going to be a guest on Duck Dynasty, all right? 
Not knocking anybody, just saying, all right? That's likely where you're going to find this guy, all right? And Obadiah here, when he realizes it's Elijah, he displays a profound respect for the prophet. Even though as we read through this, it's clear that they didn't know each other uh, well prior to this. Obadiah might work for the king, but he knows the Lord is really in charge, and he knows that Elijah is the Lord's messenger. And so he, he bows down, he says, is that you, my Lord Elijah? And he, Elijah, answered him, I am. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. Elijah gets right to the point, get Ahab. That's why I'm here, go get the king. Which Obadiah perceives those instructions, he perceives God's instructions through the prophet as God's judgment. Look at verse 9. And he, Obadiah, said, what have I sinned that you would deliver your servant into the hands of Ahab to slay me? Why does Obadiah respond this way? When he says, what did I do wrong? Where am I at fault that you are going to hand me over on a silver platter to the king? Obadiah had been walking a dangerous path working for Ahab, but secretly working against Jezebel. Rather than thinking God was pleased with him for this, Elijah's instructions seemed to him like God is going to serve him up on a silver platter to the king. And so he says, what did I do wrong? Why, why would you ask me to do something like this? But Elijah doesn't answer him. And when Elijah doesn't answer him, Obadiah explains his logic. Look at verse 10. He says, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they, they said, he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and the nation that they did not find you. Basically, Obadiah, when Elijah probably kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? And, and so Obadiah says, you don't know what's going on here. I need to explain, inform you about the current status here. He says, as the Lord your God lives, that's the strongest oath an Israeli can make. As sure as God is alive, Elijah, I, I don't think you're aware of just how much Ahab wants you. So let me explain. Everything I'm about to say is the truth as much as God being real is the truth. He says, there's not a single nation that he hasn't sent to looking for you. As the palace administrator Obadiah would be in a position to know this information. He's, he's sent to find you in other countries. And Ahab was serious enough about this search that he had no problems offending foreign dignitaries by requiring them to swear an oath that they weren't harboring you. So having explained the seriousness of the situation, Obadiah now shares his fear. And now you say, Go tell my Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry you whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he shall slay me. <laughs> I love this. I read this and I laugh because this is me on so many occasions. We used to, well, we still make fun of my dad. One of the things we make fun of my dad for is because he worries about everything. And sometimes some of the things he'll say that he worries about are, are pretty silly. I remember we were, I don't know if it was like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, and my parents had moved the dining room table to the front room where you enter in. And so we were all gathered around there, and my dad was just stressed out beyond belief. 
And we're like, Dad, what is wrong? And he's like, I don't know. I just don't like being this close to the front window. Someone could throw a brick through the window and hit somebody. <laughs> and we were all just like, Dad, who thinks of this stuff? You know, <laughs> My dad does. Well, I may not use archaic language like this guy, and it shall come to pass. When I think or when I speak, when I think or say things pretty much the same way. This is what's going to happen. I just know it. I like that this guy's fear is a little bit off the wall. You know, you're like, what, what are you so scared about, Obadiah? Well, listen, man, you're telling me to go find the king. And if I go get the king, I know as soon as I go, like a whirlwind, the Spirit of God is going to come get you and scoop you up and drop you who knows where again. And I'll come back and you won't be here and you'll kill me. And it's like, you need, you need a nap, bro. <laughs> you're like, you're like you, need a, you, need, you need a date night, all right? Like, you need, to, you need to get out and just chill for a bit, okay? Like, what are you talking about? But... But we get like that sometimes, don't we? I like that his fear is a bit off the wall. Not because God couldn't whisk Elijah away like this, but because sometimes that worst case scenario seems very real and very imminent. There comes that point in our hearts where we go, this is what's going to happen, I know it. It shall come to pass. We don't say it that way, but we, we think it. And so, let's pause here for a moment to address this, because here's the reality. None of us, not me, not you, know what will come to pass. None of us can say in a situation like this, and it shall come to pass, because we don't know what will come to pass. As sure as God is alive, He alone knows what's going to come to pass. Therefore, unless we have a direct message from God, He alone is the one who can say, and it shall come to pass. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be Obadiah, wondering every day if this is the day you're going to get caught. And I know that there have been those moments when I've been doing the right thing, but knowing it might upset certain people. Every day the enemy would kind of hit you and say, you're not doing it right enough, Will, it's going to blow up in your face. I'm sure that the enemy constantly was telling Obadiah what he could have or should have done better. And while Obadiah had no clue where Elijah was or that he would bump into him on this day, I'm very sure that the enemy was tracking Elijah's movements. And so he was ready right there with a far out lie. All your hard work, Obadiah, is for nothing because you messed up somehow. And now God's going to get you for it. Now listen, God's conviction doesn't work that way. But the enemy's condemnation sure does. The enemy always comes and says, the worst case scenario is going to happen to you. Bank on it. And when his condemnation gets into our head, it can get us thinking some far out lies. Don't listen to those. Because God's purpose and conviction is always to draw us to him. It's not to drive us from him. God's conviction is always to bring us to a place of forgiveness and restoration, not final judgment. And so when you are confronted with a fear that seeks to convince you that something is horrible, is absolutely going to happen, remind yourself of this reality. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't. Therefore, making decisions based on what ifs is not wise. 
This conversation that Obadiah and Elijah have together reminds me of Acts chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Remember when Saul was struck blind when he saw the Lord, and they bring him into the town of Damascus, and the Lord says, Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. He says, Ananias, I got a job for you to do. I want you to go to this certain spot. There's a guy there named Saul, and he's praying, and he's seen a vision of a man coming to lay hands on him to heal him of his blindness. Go pray for him. And I love Ananias because his response is so human. He goes, "Uh, Lord, I've heard about this guy named Saul. Like, wait a second, Ananias. You just start out the conversation and go, here I am, Lord, what do you want? And the Lord's like, this is what I want. And he's like, "Eh, that's a bad plan. That's a bad plan, God. Yeah, let me tell you why it's a bad plan. Same here as Obadiah. Elijah, you want me to do what? That's a bad idea. Let me tell you why that's a bad idea. You need to go back to the Lord because one of you two is not thinking correctly. And that's what Ananias says. He says, Lord, this guy, I've heard about him. He's got letters, like with permission to arrest believers. But Ananias had no clue what had happened to Saul. God did. And God's intel is better than yours and mine. It always is. Now, you might be saying, that's fine, but like God doesn't speak to me in an audible voice like he did. God didn't send me prophet Elijah like Obadiah had here. You're right. Most of us will never experience those things. What do we do about situations where we can't know what God knows? Well, that's when we fall back on what God has already revealed in his word. And then we need to rest there. We need to take our stand there and we need to start moving forward. If we're going to go anywhere, we need to start moving forward with that as our base. That's our starting point. God was not mad at Obadiah. He had no intention of doing Obadiah any harm. In fact, God had every intention of doing something good for Israel, and that included Obadiah, and of course, that includes you and me. Well, Obadiah is still in panic mode, and so after he lays out the scenario he's absolutely convinced is going to happen, when Elijah's not like, okay, I'll go, get new, I'll go get some new information. He then decides to plead his case with Elijah. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, but basically, I'm dead at the end. He says, and he, shall, and he cannot find you, he shall slay me. But that's not the right thing to happen here. I've been, I've, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Didn't, was it not told, my Lord? Didn't God tell you, Elijah, what I did when, Eli, when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Obadiah says, I've never served another God, Elijah. I've worshiped the Lord my whole life. You know, sometimes people say, I don't have a testimony. I haven't done anything horrible that God had to dramatically rescue me from it. I wish that was my testimony. What a great testimony. In fact, this is the best testimony to have. I've just walked with Jesus my whole life. What a great testimony. Was it not told? Didn't God let you know? Sometimes when I'm talking to people and giving them counsel, they won't say those words, but it's pretty much similar. You don't understand our situation. Oh, I'm sorry. I you know what? You're right. The Bible doesn't work for you. Let me go back to the Lord and get some new instructions. Obadiah is a good man. Obadiah does love the Lord. 
Somehow he has gotten it into his head to relate to the Lord in a legal way. And you know what's interesting? Obadiah is doing everything right in his life, but he still doesn't have peace. And when you and I relate to the Lord in a legal way, that never brings peace, even if you're doing all the right things. Because even if you're doing all the right things, your heart knows that you really haven't done all the right things. Right? It just does. I love one of the things that just, Pastor Justin said this morning when he was discussing this concept of the idea that even when we're like doing everything right, like there's still probably something, some part of us that's not meeting God's standard. I love that because it's so true. Like there are those moments when you say the right thing to your kid, but in that little corner of your heart, you know, there's a little bit of selfishness in there. You share in the gospel with somebody and you think, oh Lord, I, I was obedient and I did that. But then there's another part of you that knows like your pride's like going, yeah. Like it's not just happiness because maybe someone heard the gospel. And our hearts know all that stuff and they condemn us. And so this is why I must always relate to God on the basis of his grace and his mercy. Because 1 John 3.20 says, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart because he knows all things. The grace and mercy that he offers you and me is greater than the best attempt to convince myself that I am good enough for God or that I've done enough, a good enough job for God. And so, even though Obadiah was a good man, even though he loved the Lord genuinely, and even though he'd done great things for the Lord, he's convinced of a very dim future for himself. Verse 14, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. Again, the finality of his words make me chuckle because I've said or thought the exact same thing so many times. I'm done for. I made this mistake. I don't know about you, but that's why God gave me a wife, because she reminds me frequently, you're just not that important, Will. I mean, she doesn't say it quite like that. She's much more tender. But she will ask me questions, you know, do you really think that God would destroy our whole family because of this mistake you made? That's a hard way to live. I think one of the hardest lessons for us to learn as Christians is the lesson that David learned. He said, what shall I do for all the benefits that, that God has given unto me? Should I shall take the horn of salvation. Just receive them. There's always something about us that wants to be worthy of them or earn them somehow. And it will always keep us back from receiving even more of what God wants to do in our lives. There's another thing that we need to address in this vein of thinking that Obadiah reveals. Another thing I will frequently hear is, well, if I do what God says, I will fill in the blank. Like I'll, my, my spouse will leave me or my kids will hate me or my, my work will fire me or, or you know, I won't get this scholarship or whatever. My, all the things that we want or we crave in life and, and we think, well, if I obey God, that won't happen. And that's kind of essentially what Obadiah is saying here. If I follow the instructions God gave you for me, Elijah, I will end up dead. Sure as the sun is coming up tomorrow, I'm a dead man if I do what God is telling you to tell me to do. Dennis talked about this last Sunday, but it bears repeating. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not take thought. Don't be anxious for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. We so often get it backwards. Maybe you don't. I do. I discard God's kingdom principles or His right way of doing things or give them a lesser status and instead fret over the future to the point of leaning on my own understanding. That never works. Never. And even when it does work, it really doesn't work because results attained in the flesh must be maintained by the flesh, which eventually catches up with you. You know, if you're going to attain results through a lie, you have to weave a web of lies to sustain the lie, and eventually that catches up with you. I have been greatly challenged the last few months to live out Philippians 4, 6 through 7. I would say the last five years of my life has been really just making the decision not to be anxious, worried to focus on telling the Lord what I'm thankful for and then making my request to Him and letting His peace rule my heart. It's not fun finding out how stubborn and self-willed and self-reliant you can be. But I will say this. It is good to run to Jesus in confession and repentance and strengthened faith. It's good to sincerely confess, I believe you love me, Lord. I trust that you care for me, and I surrender to whatever you want. I don't work for Nahab. I don't go to bed at night worrying if the hundred believers I'm being, I've been hiding will be discovered. But I need the same solution to my fears of the future that Obadiah did. The truth. It's the same solution for any fear for the future that we have. I need the truth. You need the truth. And that's what Elijah gives to Obadiah, verse 15. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Elijah could have whacked Obadiah upside the head and said, pull yourself together, man. You can survive long enough hiding a bunch of prophets from Jezebel, one of the most powerful people in the world, working for King Ahab, one of the most powerful people in the world, certainly the most powerful person in your world. But instead, Elijah graciously meets Obadiah right where he was, matching Obadiah's oath with his own. The words I'm about to speak to you, Obadiah, are as true as God is real. I'll be here. You're not going to die. Now, note that though Elijah doesn't countenance, although he meets him where he's at, he doesn't countenance any of Obadiah's explanation. Note here that Elijah doesn't go, oh, I know you've been faithful. I know you've served the Lord your whole life. I know what you deserve or what's fair or what's right or what. He doesn't even give any attention to Obadiah's faithfulness to God. He also doesn't give any attention to any of Obadiah's what might happens or what will happens. 
Well, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says to be anxious for nothing, but with everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God shall rule in your hearts, shall guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Right after that verse, it says one other thing. Let's look at Philippians 4, 8, because this is a part of it. Philippians 4, 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Be anxious for nothing. But instead of just leaving a big, hoping to have an empty hole in your head instead of worrying, he says, fill it with this. Think on these things. We have been given in the scriptures boundaries for our thought life. Things we're allowed to think about and things we're not allowed to think about. And 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that if we end up with thoughts that are outside the boundaries that God has given to us or what we're supposed to think about, we need to take those thoughts captive, put them in jail, and replace them with the thoughts of Philippians 4.8. And so, I know Obadiah didn't have Philippians 4.8, but the principle's always been there. And so, Obadiah should have looked at the situation that he was in, and he should have recognized everything I'm thinking isn't true. None of what Obadiah said was true. God wasn't upset with him. God wasn't judging him. He wasn't going to die. One of the most important things to ask yourself when you're worrying is this. Is this thing that I'm thinking about true? Now, I didn't say, does it feel like it will be true? You need to ask yourself, is it true? The word true in the New Testament means that which is real or that which is in accordance with reality. And here's the truth. If something hasn't happened yet, again, unless we have God's direct word on that future event, then it isn't real. It's not reality yet. It's just possibility. And the Bible doesn't say, whatsoever things are possibly true, think on those things. No. It says our boundary is, is it real or is it not? And if it hasn't happened yet, then it isn't real, it isn't true, and it's off limits to my thought life. That's what Matthew 6, 34 is saying. Listen, today there's enough trouble. Today has enough trouble on its plate. You don't need to be giving anxious thoughts to tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't plan for things. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Yes. Like we need to plan for the fact that, hey, there's a bill coming up. I shouldn't spend this money on the new toy drone I want. I should go and save it for the electric bill. But the anxious thoughts should not be there to go, yeah, but if I don't get the toy drone, I'll be miserable. Dumb example, but you get the point. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. One of the most challenging battles that you and I can face is to wrangle our thoughts and put them in jail. But it's such an important battle to win. So I ask you tonight, do you take that battle seriously? Or do you let your thoughts go wherever they will? Now, if you're trying to help someone who is struggling with their thoughts, you need to do what Elijah does here. 
Don't address the what might be's. Bring them back to what is. Because the only thing that will bring peace and the strength to obey is the truth. And so he tells them the truth. You're not going to die. I'm going to be right here. Obadiah's good after that. He goes, gets Ahab. Ahab comes, and dun, 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 he meets Elijah. Verse 17, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, are you he that troubles Israel? The phrase means, have you finally dared to show your face, you troublemaker? That word trouble or troublemaker, it means one who causes hardship and distress for others. And the word in the Old Testament carries the idea of criminal activity. Not just any criminal activity, but criminal activity where the punishment needs to be separation from God's people. This is the same word that's used to describe the sin of Achan right before he was Achan. I know you've never heard that one before. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 25, right before they stoned Achan, Joshua says this, why have you troubled us? The Lord shall trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Ahab, by calling Elijah a troublemaker, is charging Elijah with a crime worthy of exile or even death. That, Elijah, you're not even worthy to be called an Israelite anymore because of what you brought upon us. Three and a half years of famine hasn't humbled Ahab at all, has it? Please don't be arrogantly stubborn like Ahab is here if God is trying to get your attention right now. If the Lord is putting a few stumbling blocks into your life or He's bringing people into your life to speak to you, to get your attention, please don't. Be arrogantly stubborn like Ahab is here. Well, before Ahab gets to the point of the meeting, he answers the charge and sets the record straight on who is really bringing harm to God's people. He, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed Baal. The word forsaken, it means to abandon or reject a previous association. Israel's relationship with God was based on the covenant they made at Mount Sinai. And that covenant stipulated that God would be there in their midst, that He would bless them. That's what He would do. And then their side of the agreement was they would keep God's law. Now, God put a sacrificial system in those commandments, in the law, so that Israel could stay close in their relationship with Him, even though they would violate His law at times. But even though God put that system in place, all of God's law was incompatible if they were going to maintain idolatrous behavior. If they were going to continue in idolatry, they, those two things don't function together. And so what Elijah's saying here is not just that Ahab and his father were sinners or they sinned in bad ways. The problem was they had rejected their covenant relationship with the Lord and replaced it with a relationship with all these different Baals. The Baalim, the word im at the end of the word makes it plural, the Baals. You see, Baal was a generic deity, but each region had their own Baal. 
And now every part of Israel had their own little idol that they followed. And so while every Israeli who participated in that idolatry was responsible for their own sin, Ahab was the one who had brought this trouble into Israel. Ahab is the one who has been a criminal against his own people. Ahab is the one who needs to be removed. But here's the amazing part. While Ahab incorrectly is ready to exile or kill Elijah, God wants to pardon Ahab. God wants to draw Ahab and all Israel to repentance, and that is why Elijah is here. Verse 19. Now, I've corrected you. Now, therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. A common argument that atheists or agnostics make is that human beings are more moral than God. For example, they will often make the argument that if you, as a human being, saw a horrible crime being committed, you would try to stop it, or you would stop it. But God sees all the horrible crimes in the world, and most of the time, He doesn't stop them. Therefore, human beings are more moral than God. I have serious issues with this line of reasoning. First off, I don't think most human beings would stop a horrible crime from being committed. I think we have evidence of that in our culture every single day. Yes, there are some brave souls who do things like that. But this day, it seems more common when someone's getting beaten or harmed, you just turn your phone on. And sometimes, human beings celebrate horrible crimes being committed. So I don't think that's a true statement. Secondly, why should only horrible crimes be stopped? Why shouldn't every crime, no matter how small, be stopped? Is there any human being out there who seeks to stop every single crime? Of course not, because in doing so, it'd mean I'd have to stop myself. Instead, I justify myself and I justify others when I don't think the crime is that bad or when I don't even agree that the behavior's wrong, which brings us to why God doesn't stop every crime And the reason is, if God stopped every crime, every human being would be in hell right now. And God doesn't want that. So God puts up with Ahabs and wicked people because he also puts up with me. And then he draws the Ahabs and the idolaters of Israel and you and me to repentance through that kindness and that mercy that he's shown us. Someday, God will put an end to all evil but because he loves us and he doesn't want anyone to perish, he waits. And that is something that I have found very few people do. In this verse here, 19, as Elijah summons Ahab, all Israel, even the false prophets to come to Mount Carmel, what we see here is the morality of love, true love, and the vast gap between God and men in living out true love. God commands Ahab to bring everyone to the top of Mount Carmel so he can display his love, so he can draw a people that deserve his judgment, that deserve to be troubled like Achan was troubled, to draw them back into a right relationship with him. 
God even invites the prophets of Baal and Asherah, who now have places of honor in the palace, eating at Jezebel's table. Men who are feasting every day while the people starve, and God's true prophets live off bread and water in caves. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know if you're angry at God tonight or not. But I can tell you this. He loves you. He has always loved you. And no matter how hard you are finding it to trust Him and draw near to Him, He is patiently drawing you close. At some point, all of us have to decide whether or not we're going to believe that or if we're going to maintain our own self-righteousness like Ahab here. Now, I don't think Ahab believed God loved him. I don't really think Ahab even cared if God loved him. But I do think Ahab knows the status quo isn't tenable. And so, if doing what Elijah says will bring the rain back, he'll go along with it for now. So to find out what happens on Mount Carmel, come back next Sunday night. Let's all stand. I remember being on top of Mount Carmel and hearing another pastor teach through this passage, teaching about the love of God. And I remember the Lord telling me, Will, I want you to give me this part of your life. And I had such a wrestling match with God up there. But it all came down to a simple truth. Do I believe God loves me, and is he to be trusted? Those questions were easy answers. Of course God loves me, and yes, he's the person I can trust more than anyone. And I have a lot of people I can trust in my life. And so at the end of the day, it was just a matter of reaffirming those truths to my heart and saying, yes, Lord, I give that to you. I don't, I don't need that in my life anymore. I don't know where you're at tonight, but I encourage you, if you've been holding something back from the Lord or you've been wrestling with him about something, he loves you. He's worthy to be trusted. So Lord, I pray for all of us here tonight that you'd help us to be just fully surrendered to you, that you'd remind us over and over again of your love for us, how your word declares these truths of your thoughts towards us, that they're good, that you have a future and a plan for us, Lord. I pray for anyone tonight who is struggling with being angry with you or frustrated, Lord, that they would just be overwhelmed by your love tonight and they would once again just trust in you. Lord, let no one leave here tonight without being absolutely convinced of that truth, that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.